Good morning. The last week we uh, talked about the shepherds who were the first to come and see our Lord when he was born. These were mainly uh, young, kind of homeless, poor kids that uh, God chose to be the first to whom he announced the coming of his son. Well, this morning we're going to be talking about the other extreme of society, the Magi. The, uh, the shepherds were, like I said, uh, for the most part, very poor, uneducated. The Magi were the uh, best educated men that the world had ever known at that time. They were the elite of society. They were the very top. They were the kingmakers. Let me uh, tell you some about the Magi. I hope you find this as fascinating as I did as I was preparing this with the flu and a fever of 100 plus. I hope I find this as interesting as I found it then. <laughs> the Magi were a very ancient people, kind of like the, um, uh, the Druids of England, only far older. They first start showing up at the rec- in the records uh, seven, eight hundred years before Jesus' time. And by the time they start showing up, they were already a, a priestly class within all of the civilizations of the Mesopotamian Valley, the birthplace of civilization. They're thought to be a, a Scythian or, or more probably a Median people that became kind of the repositories of all the wisdom, all of the histories, all of the knowledge of each civilization. And they were passed on from one civilization to another. It was an, a hereditary group that, uh, that, that had all of the knowledge. And each civilization accepted them as the intelligentsia, as the scholars, as the ones who knew. Because a lot of the knowledge of those civilizations was occult knowledge, they had extensive occult knowledge. In fact, we get our word magic from the magi. Uh, they wore very distinctive, colorful robes and a conical uh, felt hat that we associate with wizards. They were the uh, wizards of the ancient world. As uh, each new empire kind of conquered the empire that went before it in that region, the Magi always emerged, like I said, as the intelligentsia of the new empire. In fact, they were one of the most valuable spoils of conquest. They were something that the people who would conquer the civilization that came before it were after. They wanted the knowledge of the Magi. The end of uh, World War II, as World War II was drawing to an end, uh, the American and the Russian armies were racing for a prize. And that prize was the German rocket scientists. Uh, all of uh, both the American and, and the uh, Russian space program was dependent on German rocket scientists, and they were the prize of winning World War II. Well, these magi are the rocket scientists of their day. They were one of the prize. Well, with time, after being handed from one empire, one civilization to the next, they begin to be viewed as above politics. They weren't rulers or leaders. They were the scholars and the scientists. They, they were the, the engineers as well as the, the, the repository of all of the wisdom of the past. But 
this gave them an enormous political influence. In fact, what happened was that um, because they were viewed as above politics, when there was a, a question about the succession for the king or for the emperor, the Magi were brought in and arbitrated, made the decisions. Eventually, they became the kingmakers, the, the ones who decided the, 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 uh, the succession to the throne. And that, by the, by the, the, uh, the uh, sixth, seventh century BC, they were firmly established as the kingmakers. Let me tell you a little about uh, Magi's religion. In ancient times, they worshipped the four elements, the, the wind or the air, the earth, water, and fire. And fire was the primary. They were the keepers of the eternal flame that had been handed down to man from heaven. Their temples, their oldest temples, were just fairly small buildings with a flame that was never allowed to go out. And then they would light the sacrificial fires from this flame. They also were astrologers. They studied the stars and the movement of planets and the configurations because they believed that somehow the stars either controlled or at least described human destiny. They also were interpreters of dreams. They put a lot of into understanding people's dreams. And through interpreting dreams, they exerted a lot of influence over kings and emperors. Well, somewhere in the middle to late 6th century B.C., the Magi converted to a monotheism very similar to Judaism. They uh, um, worshipped one God, the creator of all things, a good God, the source of all good, who was opposed by a malevolent evil spirit, uh, Satan. They had different names, but the same basic beliefs. They, like Judaism, had the Levites. The Magi were the hereditary priests. They were the mediators between God and man. Both Judaism and the Magi religion had uh, blood sacrifices. They, they both had very well-developed understanding of, of the ritually clean and unclean. Now, what happened? What, how did the, this, this change in the Magi religion come about? Well, if you remember... It was in the middle of the 6th century B.C. that Nebuchadnezzar, the, the king of Babylon, invaded Jerusalem, Israel, and took Daniel, the prophet, as a captive back to Babylon. See, Babylon had conquered the other civilizations of the Mesopotamian Valley. Nebuchadnezzar had the Magi. They were his wise men now. And he was going, taking from, from Jerusalem the wise men of Israel. That's why he took um, Daniel and his friends, kind of adding to his group of wise men. Well, somewhere right around 570 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He called all of his magi to interpret the dream for him, and none of them could. And so he became angry, and he threatened their lives. So they brought Daniel to him. Daniel said, I can't interpret your dream, but the living true God can. God revealed to Daniel what the dream meant, and he told Nebuchadnezzar, and as a reward, Nebuchadnezzar made Daniel the leader, the ruler of the Magi. The, the term given to him was the Rav Maj, the, the, the leader, the, the head of the Magi. 
So Daniel became their leader, and he taught them about the true God. He taught them about the one God, the creator of all things. This had a profound influence on them from that point on. The, the, the wisdom of Israel, the truth of the scriptures, now became part of their, their body of knowledge and understanding. They probably even had the, the prophecies of Daniel to work from. Now I'll jump about 500 years into the future. In the meantime, uh, through, uh, to some degree, Jewish and Magi help, the Persians conquered Babylon. And again, the Magi emerge as, as the, uh, the priestly class, the wise men of Persia as well, and, and exerted enormous uh, influence there. And then about 333 B.C., Alexander and the Greeks came through, conquered even Persia. There was a very brief Greek rule of that area. But then the uh, Persians under the uh, Parthian dynasty reasserted themselves and, and began to control. And again, the Magi show up as the wise men, as the, as the, uh, the kingmakers, as the, as the priestly class for, for the new Parthian empire. Well, about 63 B.C., uh, the Roman general Pompey uh, uh, sacked Jerusalem, which was part of the Parthian Empire. The Parthian armies came and drove the Romans out. About eight years later, 55 B.C., Cassus, another uh, Roman general, took the Roman legions back in, sacked Jerusalem again, invaded Parthia, Parthian Armies came back and just wiped the Romans out, killed three or thirty thousand of the Roman soldiers. See, we don't realize it because our focus is on the West, Western civilization. But the Persian Empire, the Parthian Empire, was huge and powerful, probably at least as much as the Roman Empire. But these, uh, the Romans and the Parthians, kept going back and forth at it in 40 A.D. or 40 B.C. Excuse me. Uh, Mark Anthony led Roman soldiers back into Jerusalem, conquered Jerusalem again. A few years later, Parthian armies came and drove the Romans back out. Then, finally, uh, Augustus, uh, along with Herod's help, uh, conquered Israel. Israel had been set up after the last conquest by the Parthians. They set Israel up as, a, as an independent buffer state, had their own uh, Jewish soldiers, they wanted the, the, the Parthians just wanted to keep the Romans away. They were a nuisance to them. But the, uh, Augustus and, and Herod basically took over, uh, through, mainly through intrigue, but some, uh, some military efforts, uh, took over Israel. Her Herod was appointed king of the Jews. So you realize all of these comings and goings, the, the, the Roman invasion, the Parthian counter-invasions, all happened during Herod's lifetime. Twice he had to flee in front of the Parthian armies and, and, and flee to Rome. And the time was probably ripe for another Parthian invasion. Now what was going on in uh, Parthia at the time of Jesus' birth was that the Parthian emperor was very old, uh, very weak, and very unpopular. And he had no suitable heir to the throne. So it's, it's probable that the Magi were in search of a new king for the Persian Empire. They, they would have been very open to a Jewish ruler. They'd had uh, rulers in the past with Jewish blood. If you remember Esther, 
queen under Xerxes was, uh, was Jewish. Her descendants were Jewish. And, and they had a lot of, within the, the Babylonian and the, and the Persian um, uh, dynasties, there had been a lot of Jewish leaders. So they would have been very open to that. And again, they probably had the prophecies of Daniel. So they knew about this time, that the time was ripe for the king, who, who would be the king of, of the entire world, to be born. So they came perhaps looking for that Messiah, perhaps even thinking of, of trying to take him back and establishing him on the throne of the Persian Empire. Well, now let's get into our passage and see how it comes alive. Matthew 2, starting with verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. said they saw his star in the east and they came to worship him. What did they see? Now, remember, these men were astrologers. They studied the stars and, and the movement of planets and the configurations and the constellations. Well, modern astronomers tell us about this time in 4 B.C., there was a convergence of the planet uh, Jupiter and the planet Saturn. Uh, they came together in the constellation of Pisces. You say, so? Well, in, in ancient astrological charts, Pisces was the, the constellation or the house of the Hebrews, the house of the Jews. Jupiter was the king of God. Saturn was the god of blessing to man, the god of the golden age. And somehow in their astrological charts and logic and, and working it all out, somehow this convergence within the, 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 the constellation of Pisces meant that a king was born in the house of Israel, in the house of the Jews, that would bring in the golden age. The king of the Jews was born. Also, I'm told that this convergence, this coming together of these two planets would have made them shine very brightly as one. So perhaps this is the, uh, the Christmas star. We don't really, don't really know. But then we're told, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. Now, tradition has it that there were three wise men, even giving us their names, uh, Caspar, Malchior and Balthazar. This is a, uh, you know, the, the, the tradition is that you have these three men on these gangly camels coming alone into town to uh, find the baby Jesus. Well, the reality is that this is a very, very recent tradition. Older traditions had many more wise men, probably at least a dozen of them. But you have to realize these men were the elite of the Persian Empire, and the Persian Empire was an enormous and a powerful empire. Israel, at this point, was Roman-held territory. These men would probably not have come without a sufficient cavalry, without a sufficient armor guard to, to ensure safe passage through, into Roman-held territory. They probably came in with a very large retinue of, of Servants and attendants. So this significant force, uh, with all this pomp and, and, and you know ceremony, these were the the elite, and they would have traveled with that kind of pomp and and expected that kind of respect. 
So they come into Jerusalem, and you can understand why this would have been very upsetting to, to the people in Jerusalem. You know, maybe this was the advance guard of, of the next Parthian invasion. Uh, Herod would have been especially upset. He had, like I said, had to flee twice before the Parthian armies. Uh, and besides, he was the king of the Jews under the Romans. Under the Persians, he was nothing. And we've already seen how insanely jealous Herod was of his rule. Several weeks ago, we were talking about another passage. We talked about how Herod had killed so many of his sons because he was afraid that they were going to be after his throne. Caesar Augustus was quoted as saying once, It is safer to be Herod's pig than his son because he had killed so many of his sons. Well, now Herod has another rival that, that kind of inflames his paranoia. But even though Herod was upset, notice the deference he pays to these, these men, these magi. He knows that he's dealing with kind of the intellectual elite of the world here. He also probably understands that... Uh, uh, the uh, Parthian armies may be looking for an incident as an excuse to, to start their invasion. Uh, Herod doesn't realize that in all probability these guys were coming at a time of national weakness when they were looking for a, a new ruler, a new king. But anyway, Herod finds out for them where the baby would be born. Verse 4. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be called the shepherd of my people Israel. When, excuse me, then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. The old uh, fox was already covering his bets. Um, in case the Magi didn't find this baby, he was probably already planning the execution of all the children of that age and younger. Herod was an incredibly ruthless man. When he came close to his death, when he was very old and close to dying, he gave orders to have all of the leading men of Jerusalem collected, brought into an amphitheater, and held there. And his instructions were, the moment he died, to execute all of these men. Because he wanted there to be grieving and mourning at his death. And he knew nobody would grieve when he died. So he was going to have all of the prominent people of Jerusalem killed so that everybody would be grieving and mourning at his death. Fortunately, uh, apparently, the, uh, his, uh, the, either the Romans or his... His successor did not allow that to happen, but that was his intent. Anyway, verse 8. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country 
by another route. These magi found their king and they worshipped him. Now, they had been warned in a dream not to go back and tell Herod. Perhaps they were also told in that dream that this, was not to, this, this child was not to be taken back to Persia or whatever. But they uh, had found their king. The gifts they gave him were testimony that they considered him their king. They kneeled before him. They gave him gold. Gold was the gift for a king. Roman philosopher and historian Seneca wrote that uh, no one would dare approach a Parthian king without a gift. And gold was the appropriate gift. So in giving this baby gold, they were acknowledging him as their king. And frankincense, giving him frankincense. Frankincense was the, um, the spice, the, the incense used in the, uh, uh, the temple worship. And in, in giving him frankincense, they were recognizing him as a priest. See, they were the priestly class. And, and they were acknowledging him as the priest. The one who would mediate between God and men. The one who could bring us into the very presence of God. And myrrh was an embalming spice. And, and many see this as an awareness by the Magi that Jesus was to die. In that song that we sang about the, the three kings of Orient are, uh, it, it, that, the verse about the myrrh talks about the coming death, the, the, the pain and the suffering and the death. Well, it, it, if these things are true, what these wise men, what these magi were doing in bringing these gifts was recognizing Jesus as the true king, as the, as the perfect, ultimate high priest, and as the Savior of mankind. Well, let's return to the uh, original issues. The, uh, the, the first things I started talking about last week, we talked about the shepherds, uh, these poor, young kind of society's outcasts. We talked about the fact that God has always had a place in his heart for shepherds. He's always had a place in his heart for kind of the poor, dirty street kids. God has always loved the, the simple and the uneducated. God has always loved the down and outers. Well, here we see that God loves the up and inners as well. He loves the rich and the wise and, and the influential. He is not prejudiced to, uh, against people because of their, of their education or because of their situation, because of their wealth. God does not show partiality. But the fact is that uh, there aren't that many of the wise and the, the rich and the famous that, that come to Jesus. Paul, 1 Corinthians, as he's thinking about that church in Corinth, he writes to them, he says, Look around you. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. 
See, there Paul is recognizing that there aren't many rich and famous among them. But is this because God doesn't love the rich and famous? That he's prejudiced against people who have good education, who, who, who have influence? Well, not at all. In that passage, he tells us why this is. He says, it's to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. The issue, the problem, is a problem of pride, of boasting before God, of human pride. See, unfortunately, all too often, wealth insulates a person with with just an insulation of pride. There's there's kind of a, a culturally imposed a sense of, of superiority associated with wealth. Very often people who are very successful in, in politics or in business are because they have a very strong drive of, of pride. Not always, but often that's what drives them. Many times, again, not always, but many times people seek degrees of higher learning motivated by, by pride, trying to bolster their self-esteem. And pride is antithetical to coming to Jesus as Savior. So often people who are poor or who, uh, um, who, who, who aren't socially terribly competent, who struggle with society's low view of them, these people easily recognize that they need a Savior. They feel it. They're, they're, they're more quickly able to admit that they need a Savior. But for those who have learned to, to cover their lostness with a thin veneer of uh, sophistication or education or wealth, it becomes extremely difficult to, to, to admit that these things that they've pursued all their lives aren't what they need, aren't what can give them what their hearts yearn for. There's a huge hurdle of, of pride here. Very few would ever argue that poverty and squalor and lack of education are the keys to life and joy and peace. But almost every society holds out wealth, education, influence, power as the keys to life and joy and peace. And for those who've invested their lives in pursuing these things, it becomes almost insurmountable to come and kneel before that little baby, uneducated, poor, unsophisticated, to kneel before him in need of his salvation. But you see, that's exactly what the wise men do. These men were the richest of the rich. They were the most sophisticated of the sophisticates. They were uh, you know, the, 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 the top. They were the most powerful influential. They were the best educated of all the educated. And yet they come and they kneel before this baby, unashamed, not afraid to, to be humble before him. You know, through the years and through the centuries, men and women of wealth and of education, of, uh, of influence, have come to the Lord. In fact, during the, um, the scientific revolution, 
Most of the leaders of that revolution, men like Francis Bacon, uh, Blaise Pascal, Isaac Newton, these men were all men of faith. And most people don't realize that Isaac Newton, you know, the famous physicist, he stopped writing physics when he was 24 years old so that he could dedicate himself full-time to studying the Scripture and theology. Now, these men who first defined or described the scientific method, these, uh, uh, these men were men of faith. They, they saw no contradiction, no conflict between learning and trusting God. They correctly believed that if God's the creator of all things, the more we learn about what he created, the more we study it, the more we will be impressed with how wise, how powerful, how insightful, how subtle, how grand God is. It would be filled with awe and praise of him. It wasn't probably until the, the latter part of the 19th century, just 100 years ago, that, uh, that uh, this sense that, that the scripture and science were in conflict, began to really become strong, largely due to the emergence of, of evolution as a scientific dogma. Uh, there became kind of a popular belief that intellect and faith are in conflict, are incompatible. They aren't. A man by the name of Lou Wallace was a very famous general and a literary genius at the turn of the century. He and a friend of his by the name of Robert Ingersoll set out to write a book that would once and for all debunk Christianity, show it for what it was, nothing more than a myth. So they spent two years researching in all of the best libraries of Europe and America, gathering all this data to once and for all show uh, Christianity up for the, the, the superstitious myth that it is. Well, while writing his second chapter of his book, Wallace found himself on his knees crying out, My Lord and my God. When he looked honestly, he couldn't avoid who Jesus was, what Jesus had done. He ended up writing uh, the book Ben-Hur instead of the book that he had planned to write. Similar thing happened to uh, Dr. C.E. Jode, who was the chairman of the philosophy department at the uh, University of London. He spent most of his life opposing the gospel, trying to disprove the scriptures and arguing against Christianity. And very late in his life, just a few years before his death, looking back over his life, all that had happened during his life, two world wars, genocide on an enormous scale, anarchy in many parts of the world, he concluded that the sinfulness of man is an established objective fact and that only Jesus has the answer for sin. So he spent the last years of his life as a follower of Jesus and an a arguer for the gospel. One of my all-time heroes is C.S. Lewis. He was the chair of the uh, literature department at um, Oxford University. A highly educated man, all kinds of degrees and letters. Uh, he describes himself as being dragged, kicking and screaming the kingdom. He did not want to believe, but he couldn't avoid the truth that was there. 
We could talk about uh, Dr. Moore, Harvard University, Dr. Phelps of Yale, both uh, very articulated, highly educated proponents of the faith. Dr. Uh, Bill Bright, the uh, head of Campus Crusade, has talked to hundreds, if not thousands, uh, of uh, the top intellectuals of our time. He makes this statement. He says, I have yet to meet a man who has honestly considered the overwhelming evidence concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who does not admit that he is the Son of God. While some do not believe, they are honest in confessing I have not taken the time to read the Bible or consider the historical facts concerning Jesus. Their attitude is founded upon some unfortunate childhood experience, the inconsistency of some Christian, or perhaps the influence of a college professor. But they admit that they have not honestly considered the person of Jesus Christ and his claims on their lives. Now I say all this just to make the point that there is no contradiction between an acute, well-developed intellect and faith in Jesus. Paul is, is a great testimony of that. The Apostle Paul, a brilliant man who lived his life for the Lord. Now again, uh, he also had to be dragged kicking and screaming. Actually, he was blinded and led into the kingdom by the hand. But the fact is, that uh, in our day, the majority of scholars, the majority of professors, the majority of the shakers and movers do not believe. But it's not an issue of intellect. It really is an issue of the will, of pride. What it comes down to is, am I willing to come before this little baby in a manger and kneel before him like the Magi did. When all of the intellectual issues are, are, are taken care of, it really comes back down to, uh, to a matter of faith. Am I willing to believe? Now, if you're out there with uh, intellectual Problems with the faith, I understand that. There are many people who do. But let me encourage you. Seek out the answers. The answers are out there. I may not know all of them, but they're there. Don't just let those questions linger in your mind as a, as a kind of an excuse to stay in neutral. If your intellect is keeping you from coming to Jesus, kneeling before Him, giving Him your heart, and your life. Face that for what it is. Science and religion aren't in conflict. Only bad science and bad religion are. Face it as, as, as a matter of the will, as, as an issue of the heart. Find the answers if you need them. Seek them out. But likely is not. It's not the intellectual issues that are keeping you back. I think it's interesting. In Bethlehem, where uh, this cave is, the, the cave where Jesus is born, they've built a church on top of it. It's the Church of the Nativity. You can go in this church, and you go up to the high altar, and, and, and right there, there's a stairway. You can go down, and underneath the altar, there's this cave that Jesus, they believe Jesus was born in. Well, to get into the area where the cave is, 
you have to go through a very low doorway. It's impossible for anyone, for any grown adult to get through that doorway without bowing way down. That was intentional on the part of the architect. He did not want anyone, king or commoner, rich or poor, to enter the place where that baby lay without bowing down in humility. So the fact is, you can't come to that baby without bowing down spiritually. Come to that little baby. Kneel before him. Present him with your life and your gifts. He's the king. Let him rule in your life. He's, he's the priest. Let him bring you into the very presence of God. He is the Savior who, who grew up, died on the cross for your sins. Let him save you. These magi knew they needed a king. And they came searching for him. Unashamed. No embarrassment. They were looking because they knew they needed a king. And you, no matter how educated you are, no matter how influential, no matter how wealthy, you need a king on the throne of your heart. It's a simple fact. Come to this baby. Poor, unsophisticated, uneducated. Come to him. Kneel before him. Like they say, wise men, wise women still seek him. Let's pray. Lord, I am staggered when I just think that you really are the greatest person that has ever lived. I mean, you, of all the kings of history, of all the brilliant men, you are the greatest. We would uh, all probably jump at the chance to, to, to talk with an Einstein or with, uh, uh, with some great man of history. And yet we have the opportunity to know you personally, to walk with you, to have you showing us what life is about, explaining it to us, teaching us, and we ignore that. Lord, we uh, come to you as the King, kneel, giving you our lives. We come to you as our priest, knowing that you uh, open the way to the Father, that we can know God because of you, and that that is eternal life. And we accept the salvation that was purchased by your death. Lord, we worship you. Help us to overcome the foolishness that so often comes with our educations, with our, our successes, with our wealth, with our uh, position and prestige. Help us to turn away from them as the traps that they are and to turn to you, kneel before you, and accept your love and place our lives in your hands. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.